Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark this morning. The Gospel of Mark. And today, the goal of this study, as you pull out your notes there and follow along, I've got a few blanks and then some blank space in between that you can jot down some uh, other things that I'll share by way of um, the slides and just speaking about. But we're starting our study today in the Gospel of Mark. There's four Gospels here in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them is wonderfully unique and very descriptive of our Lord and Savior's life. Uh, the little uh, sheet that you have inside of your handout today, that, that, that graphical summary and overview of the entire Gospel of Mark, that is from this website, thebibleproject.com. So if you'd like to go there, there's actually about a seven to eight minute animated video that draws out that picture. Um, I, I just love to see how they draw those. And so uh, he, 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 he basically goes through the entire summary of Mark. And so you can go to thebibleproject.com. There's also some great um, Bible reading tools. If you'd like to read through the Bible in a year, they've got a great tool to help you do that. Or if you just want to spend this year studying the Gospels, you can do that. I do hope that in this series, you will dig in with me to the book of Mark as we study it together, not just in our Sunday morning service, but that you would spend time personally in God's Word throughout the week, um, studying along with me, reading through it. And I think there's a lot for us to glean from God's Word. Even if you've heard the Gospel of Mark preached on before in your Christian life, um, uh, there's always something new. My grandmom used to tell me that every year that she would read through her Bible. She would say, Brian, I learned something new every time. I didn't really, understood what she, I didn't really understand what she meant back then, but I understand that a lot more now. And so I hope that this study will be an encouragement to you. Um, and so with that, also, if you'd like to color, you know, I said the kids can color. But we know that some of y'all like to color too. So if you'd like to color and add, add your color uh, presentation to this summary, do that. And maybe we'll have a pastor's coloring contest or something. Um, I, I'll tell you, back in November, my, my mind keeps going back to the trip that I had in November, the sabbatical that the church graciously afforded me to, be, uh, to take after my two-week family vacation. And during that month, we were able to see some incredible sights. This is a picture here of Niagara Falls. Um, as you travel, you're just overwhelmed when you see the beauty of nature and you, and you come away with this realization that God is the master painter. Um, I, I, I love nature. I love the seasons, the changing of the seasons. I love the beauty of God's handiwork and to see, and to see all the different forms of it. But when you look at all these beautiful pictures I'm about to show you that I was able to see during the month of November, all these beautiful vistas of, of, of God's creation really consist of four basic elements. Earth, rock, plants or foliage, and water. So obviously Niagara's main uh, 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 combination there is water and rock. Uh, very little foliage, so to speak. But, uh, but yeah, earth, rock, foliage, and water. So we had the chance to see Niagara. This was the lake outside of our cabin where my family stayed for a couple of days. Wasn't that fun, guys? That was a lot of fun, very restful up, up there in upstate New York. Um, this was out in California where I spent my sabbatical. That was the view out my um, little pastor's apartment there and uh, right on the edge of the Mojave Desert. So not a lot of water here, a little bit, but mainly rock and earth uh, would be the elements that God is, is emphasizing there. 
uh, beautiful sunsets. As you can see, though, again, the four primary elements that God uses to paint his masterpieces are earth, rock, foliage, and water. There was Joshua Tree National Park, me looking up at the Milky Way um, and just enjoying the beauty of God's creation. There's the stone arch monument there in Joshua Tree, the uh, just, just beautiful. Um, I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, uh, there's, there's a lot of beautiful mountain ranges. There's the Appalachian Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, uh, the Tetons, which are still kind of a part of the Rocky Mountains. But I'll tell you what, the White Mountains of the Sierra Nevada, how many of you have ever seen those? They are just breathtaking. A beautiful combination, again, of earth, rock, foliage, and water. And then, of course, the cream de la creme, uh, the cherry on the top. At the end of our trip, we were able to go to Yosemite and just spend a few days, my, my wife and I, and just behold the beauty of God's creation there. El Capitan, Half Dome, and just enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Um, why do I sh share with you all those pictures? Because as I thought about the Gospels, this is connected, I think. <laughs> um, as I thought about the Gospels, you know, there's, there's, there's four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they all have the basic elements of the story of Jesus that they're telling you about. But each one presents a little bit of a different view of the same basic life of Jesus. And so as we study these Gospels together, we see that they had the same life. They're telling you about the same person. But each one has a beautiful view of Jesus to share with us. Each scene is unique in its perspective. Even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as what we call the synoptic gospels, meaning that they are very similar, even in those, they, they, they have a different emphasis that they're trying to drive home. In fact, John is fascinating when you look at the book of John. John shares over 90% things that are unique in his gospel to the other three gospels. And in fact, John says, I love what John said at the end of his gospel. He said this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. How many of you are looking forward to getting to heaven and finding out about all the other things that Jesus did that we don't know about? Isn't that going to be incredible? That's going to be exciting. I, I'm, I'm so thankful that God didn't give us everything, that there's more to learn in heaven when we get there about the life of Jesus. But John really did try to sum up and say, hey guys, we've done our best to try to tell you about this incredible life, the son of God, the one who changed the course of human history, the one who really the whole point of creation is about. He's alpha and omega, and John really does sum it up well. These four writers were giving to us the same life of Jesus, but, but from a different perspective and view. Um, Matthew, as you know, viewed Jesus from the perspective of a Jewish tax collector. So there's many Old Testament references in the book of, of Matthew. But someone who is not acquainted with the Old Testament will not appreciate Matthew as much as they might appreciate one of the other Gospels. Mark, as we're going to study here, was written to the Greek, Western, or Roman mind. Mark paints for us a scene altogether different and unique. He's the shortest of the four Gospels. Um, which is interesting, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. And so the accounts are different because the men that are writing are different. And so we would expect that. We would expect that these accounts would be a little bit different, sort of like an eyewitness testimony, right? Um, 
uh, eyewitness accounts share different details and perspectives of the same situation. What you have in the Gospels is not contradictory information, but complementary information. Each of these Gospels gives a unique perspective on the life of Christ. That is, why, that, that is why it would help us better to understand the human writer of this book before we begin our study really going into it. And so the goal today is to understand the life of Mark, the writer himself, so that you can better appreciate as we go through this study together over the next several months what this book really uh, is all about and, and how it should impact our lives. And so in order to understand the book, it's important to understand the life of the writer behind the book. Wouldn't you agree? And so in order to do that, let's look first of all this morning at the family of Mark. And we're actually not going to go to Mark. We're going to go to another passage of Scripture or another book of the Bible and kind of go in the back door. So let's look at the book of Acts for a moment. Hold your place there in Mark. I promise we'll get back there before we end our study today. But let's go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Acts chapter number 12 is where we'll begin our survey of Mark's life. Who, who was Mark? What was his life all about? And what led him to write about the life of Jesus? How did his eyewitness account come to be, or was he an eyewitness? Now, let me say this. Out of the four gospel writers, only Matthew and John were, quote, eyewitnesses. They were right there at the time of Jesus. Mark, as we're going to learn, actually wrote down what most likely Peter told him, the apostle Peter. Now, I do believe Mark was alive during the time of Christ, um, but he wasn't actually uh, an eyewitness to the life of Christ. So Mark is going to be Peter's uh, uh, basically stenographer, writing down what Peter told him. And then Luke, as we know, interviewed several eyewitnesses to put together his gospel. So Matthew and John are the only eyewitnesses, but Mark and Luke interviewed the eyewitnesses and wrote those Gospels. And so let's look first at the family of Mark. If you're taking notes, you can write down there the family of Mark. And let's look at who Mark is. We, we, we find out a little bit more about him in Acts chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. It says, And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel. Just picking up the story here, angel had been in, uh, angel Peter had been imprisoned because he was preaching the gospel, and an angel came and delivered him from jail, from the hand of Herod, and it says, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So there's Mark. This is the man who later would write the gospel of Mark. As you study Mary's home, and you study her, her, her place in the gospel even, you find that Mary's home was the rallying, the rallying point or one of the rallying points of the early church. Many scholars believe that. Um, this was a place in Jerusalem where they had their prayer meetings each week and they had a home church here at this time because they didn't have a building that they could meet in. And so um, some scholars even speculate that Mary's home, Mark's home, was the location of the Last Supper of Jesus. And they also believe that Mark might have been witness in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, because it says that there was a man there uh, beholding all these things. Mark, Mark references this in Mark 14, that there was a guy there witnessing all these things, but he ran away unclothed. And so we don't know if that's exactly Mark, but po possibly Mark could have been there, maybe a very young man. 
But anyway, we see the family of Mark here. We see that he was uh, the, the son of, of Mary and that her home was a rallying point of the early church. Peter knew to go there and share the news that he had been delivered from, from prison. And so Mark was raised in this context with under his mother's care. Now, we have no mention of Mark's father. And so because of that, one could maybe assume and infer that Mark was protected by his mom. Look down at verses 24 and 25 of Acts chapter number 12. So the, local, so the early church is growing, and it says in verse 24, But the word of God grew and multiplied. So the word of God was increasing and multiplying. The church was thriving. Oh, man. What, a, what an experience that would have been to be a part of the first century church and to see the, the Spirit of God on the move and the, and, the, and the early church thriving and seeing God's Word grow and multiply. And it says here that because of this, the local servants there in Jerusalem, it says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Barnabas and Saul had already been establishing a, a, an itinerant ministry of church planting. And so they come back to Jerusalem, and John Mark evidently is of the age where he really feels led to go and serve with Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journey. And so this is the background of the writer of the gospel of Mark, the family of Mark. So, so Mark was uh, in his mother's home, and, and he was raised probably in, in, a, in a protective environment. We can't say that for sure, but we can assume that we, we don't read about his father here, so we don't know much about that. But this is who Mark is. This is a little bit of the background of his family. But now let's look at what happens, because Mark goes on this missionary journey, and we look at the failure of Mark. We look at the failure of Mark. Look at Acts chapter number 13 for a moment. It says in verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know why Mark left. We don't know why John Mark left the journey. We don't know if he got sick. We don't know if... If he was just too young, and so he was really excited to go on the journey. How many of you have ever been really excited to do something for God, but then you got in the heat of it, and you're like, wow, this is hard, you know? Maybe he saw a, a neat missions video that, that really stirred his heart. Oh, yeah, I'll go to the mission field. I'll go to the ends of the earth. And then he got there, and he's like, wow, this is hard. So for some reason, maybe, maybe the journey was too difficult. I mean, hello, hanging out with Paul, you're kind of a target anyway. Paul was beaten several times, shipwrecked. So John Mark's probably like, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what the photo book uh, promised. So we don't know exactly. All, all we can gather is that maybe it was too difficult because Paul was very hard on him. I can't see Paul being very hard on him if he got sick and he had to go home early. Or maybe he was homesick. That's what many scholars believe is that Mark just got homesick. He missed his mama. Um, that, that could happen. I, I, I remember going off to Bible college and bawling like a baby as my mom and dad drove away for my freshman year. I cried for hours. I was a little homesick. I mean, that was like the first moment of separation really in my life. And uh, so I, I can identify with that. So for some reason, um, Mark leaves. Uh, 
Chrysostom, one of the early church pastors in the, through the first through third century, he said that Mark went home because he wanted his mama. Uh, Chrysostom was pretty hard on him. Um, Paul viewed that the, the quitting of Mark as very um, detrimental, and he didn't go easy on, on Mark, and Paul wouldn't soon forget it. In fact, we pick up the story. So we see John Mark leave the mission journey. We see his failure there. And we see in Acts 15, verses 36 through 39, if you flip over there, it says, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. So as we've talked about in times past, Barnabas was a guy who just believed the best about everybody. You know, he, he, he wanted people to succeed. Now, we do know that Barnabas and John Mark were actually cousins, so maybe that was part of the thing. Maybe Barnabas was willing to give John Mark a little bit of an extra pass because he was family. I don't think that's the case. I think Barnabas was just that kind of guy. He just chose to forgive, and he chose to give people a second chance. And, and so that was just who Barnabas was, was known for. And so... Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them on this new trip to see how the churches were doing that they had planted on the first. But let's look at the second screen here, verses 38 and 39. It says, But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So Paul's like, Nah, sorry. He left us high and dry, Barnabas. Don't you remember? Mark was all gung-ho at the beginning, and then he quit on us. And look at this. Barnabas and Saul, this is why I know the Bible's true. Because the Bible's not trying to present to you just the beautiful pictures of the early church getting all happy and along. This is a true story because they, they mention it here. The contention was so sharp between Barnabas and Paul that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took John Mark and sailed into Cyprus. So Paul insisted that they should not take Mark along because he was a quitter. He had deserted the team. And because of that, there was such a sharp division between Saul and Barnabas that they split from one another. I guess you have here the first uh, signs of church splits. <laughs> um, two leaders who couldn't get along. Thankfully, down the road, if you continue to read the story, you find out that in the end they do patch things up. There's restoration. There's forgiveness, which is beautiful, which we'll mention here in a moment. But we see the failure here of John Mark. He, he left. Um, but I love as you keep reading the epistles, as you keep reading through the New Testament, you find out that Paul's heart somewhere along the way changed towards John Mark. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Uh, Paul is at the end of this letter to the churches of Colossae. And he says here at the end of that letter, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. So there Paul is saying, listen, if Mark comes to you with some instructions that I'm going to give to this church, receive them from him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, and then notice how he mentions all these names, and this is what Paul says about these men. These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. So somewhere along the line, Paul forgave John Mark 
and he sought restoration. The, the, the relationship was restored. And Paul calls John Mark here a fellow worker and a comfort to him. If you keep reading, one of the more familiar passages in this whole situation is 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11. At the end of that one, Paul says, Do thy diligence to come to me shortly, Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me. So there's another person who deserted Paul. Demas, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica, Grecians, to Galatia, Titus, and to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. But then he says this. He says, Take Mark and bring him with thee. And this is what he says about him. For he is profitable to me for ministry. Now, this is where we can apply this message today to us. This is a basic introduction to the book of Mark. We're, we're, we're really trying to dive in today and find out a little bit more about the family of Mark, his, his biographical sketch. We see here the failure of Mark. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we read these verses. Number one, have you ever failed miserably in life? Raise your hand if you've ever been a failure in life. <laughs> Good news. We can identify with John Mark. How many of you have ever been a quitter? <laughs> Everybody should raise their hand because I know everybody's probably quit a diet that they should have been keeping on. Amen? I mean, and you're, and you're like, yeah, pastor, preach to yourself. I am. Um, so, yeah, have you ever failed miserably in life? But, 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 but really getting serious about it. Have you ever failed the Lord? We all have. Aren't you encouraged that a failure was used by God to write one of the four accounts about the life of his son? So you might have walked in this room this morning saying, I'm a failure. I'm just going to, I mean, I've already quit. I'm just going to quit everything else. I, think, I feel like my marriage is failing. I feel like my job is failing. So I'm just going to quit, start over. Take heart. Don't give up. See that God used a failure to write one of the four accounts about his son's life. Have you ever made a stupid decision that would impact you and your reputation for years to come? I mean, think about it. John Mark leaves, and then he gets a bad reputation for several years. Paul is not happy with him. Take heart. Take heart. But let me ask you this question. All of us can identify with the fact that we failed in life. But let me ask you this. Has anyone ever failed on you? Raise your hand if anyone's ever failed on you. Okay. We've all had people who have let us down. Have you ever had someone desert you? Have you ever had someone desert your business, impact your business, impact your home life because they deserted you? We all have. The challenge, I think, though, here in this story is we look at the biography of Mark and look at the background of his life. The challenge is that we would be patient enough and gracious enough to see the potential that's still in that person. Barnabas saw it. And I don't think it's just because John Mark was his cousin. I don't think that Barnabas was that shallow that he was just willing to give a pass to, to John Mark because he was family. Because we know that Barnabas was the one that really took Saul under his wing. And if there's anybody that you should have kept at a distance for a while until you really knew was Saul because he was murdering Christians. So Barnabas had this heart that, yes, people fail, but we're not going to give up on them because there's still potential. I think Barnabas saw it a little sooner than, 
than, than Paul did. But we learn at the end of Paul's epistles here that he's writing that he does see that, that, that Mark's a fellow worker and that he's profitable for ministry and that he's a comfort to him. And I think the challenge in, that, in this story, in this biographical sketch on the life of the writer of the Gospel of Mark is this. God is always at work writing people's story. They might have had a bad chapter or two, or they might have had a bad section, but God isn't done writing their story yet. And so as we look at this story, as we look at the life of John Mark, we can identify with him in the sense that, yes, we have all failed. And praise God, God's not done with us yet. He's still writing the story. And then we can also understand that, yes, people have failed on us, but God's not done. There might have been a bad chapter. There might have been a bad section of the book. But God is always at work writing people's story. So the challenge is, give it time. Give them forgiveness. Give them grace. Open up the possibility not only for forgiveness, but for restoration. And those are two different things. But they're so important and they're so vital. So we see the family of Mark. We see the, 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 the failure of Mark. But finally this morning, we look briefly at the focus of Mark. What is Mark going to emphasize and focus upon in his gospel that we're going to study this year? What are some things he is going to focus upon? So with that, turn back to the book of Mark now. You're like, are we ever going to get there? Yeah, but we're only going to get to the first verse. But it's so amazing. Look at what Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know what's so fascinating about that verse right there? That's the only time in the entire gospel where Mark's going to tell you what he thinks. The rest is all going to be reporting what Peter shares with him as he hears the eyewitness details that Peter gives to him. But Mark wants you to know right as you start the book that he's not just writing this from a distance as if someone else believed it. He's a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he calls Jesus Christ the Son of God. The Son of God. We know from study that Mark is the earliest of the four gospels, meaning that this is the one that most likely Matthew and Luke based their basic um, telling of, of their story upon. Of course, they gave a lot more details. Mark is kind of the skeleton of the life of Jesus, and then Matthew and Luke come along and put in a lot more details. As we mentioned earlier, Mark is the shortest. Uh, I love Mark because Mark is kind of like that pioneering trailblazer who's writing the first account, right? How many of you have ever seen the first edition of Snow White, okay? Uh, th that, that's the person who blazed the trail. Yeah, there's been remakes over and over or what, 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 whatever story you can think of. But we're thankful for those who blazed the trail first, led of the Spirit to write down the story of Jesus. So Mark was first. Mark was led by the Spirit to write down his account of the life of Jesus as he heard it from the lips of Peter. And so most likely Mark is writing down the eyewitness accounts and stories that Peter was telling him. What does Mark emphasize in his gospel? There's four things, four themes that you're going to see 
throughout our study. And I hope that they're all helpful as we read God's word, as we study it together, as we learn from it. Number one, Mark is a book of action. He doesn't waste a lot of time in between stories. It's like a, 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 a series of dominoes lined up back to back. And the moment the first one tips over, it's like boom, 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 boom. It, I mean, it, it's, it's nonstop. Mark is hit you in the face, get your attention, grab you by the throat and say, look at this man. In fact, Mark is, is so focused on getting to, to ultimately the cross of Jesus. He, he, he obviously starts with the life of Jesus in the first eight chapters. In the final uh, section of scripture, it, he turns his focus clearly to the cross. But as you can see in your overview sheet that you have there, he, he's going to spend the first few chapters talking about, okay, who is this person? Who is this person? But he focuses on the action of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. So there's a lot of action. This should be the gospel that gets the 21st century's mind, uh, 21st century person's mind the quickest, because it's just quick, quick. It gets your attention, it keeps your attention, and it's a short read. So it's a book of, a book of action. He, he uses the word... Uh, uh, on, on many, many occasions, the word immediately. You'll, you'll see that throughout the reading of this gospel. He places stories and accounts back to back. You don't really get a sense of the passage of time between the events, although we know from the other gospels that there were um, the, the, the passing of time. So there's no pause. Number two, he emphasizes events in the life of Jesus over the words of Jesus. You will not find the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Mark. You won't find a lot of the teachings of Jesus in the book of Mark. You will find some of the parables that Jesus taught in the book of Mark. But a lot of the other teachings that are emphasized in Matthew and Luke, they're nowhere to be found in the book of Mark. Mark is most interested in getting into the flow of events in the life of Jesus that would lead him to the cross to be that suffering servant king for the world. So Mark emphasizes action. He emphasizes events over words. Thirdly, you're going to see that he is very interested, and this is fascinating to me, people's reaction to Jesus. He's very interested in how people respond to the life of Jesus, which is such a powerful lesson for us as we go through this study. Because the question this morning is, how is the truth of Jesus causing you to respond right now? How is the truth of the gospel going to cause you to respond this week? Who is this Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Is he my king? Mark is going to ask that question through people's reactions over and over throughout this study. I can't wait for you to see that as those reactions come alive. For example, one is when Jesus calms the storm when he's in the boat with the disciples. How many of you know that story, right? He, they're, they're out there on the Sea of Galilee. A storm blows up. Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And Matthew just says, um, the disciples say, Lord, save us. Mark says that the disciples say, Master, do you not care that we're perishing? Save us. So you see right there that Mark is interested in getting the disciples and the people's reactions more to the events and to the action, the miracles of Jesus. And so you get a human interest level with Mark that you don't get necessarily with Matthew or with Luke. And then finally, we see that Mark's overall theme is to present Jesus Christ, the suffering servant king. In fact, here in the first 11 verses that we're going to study next week, 
Mark references two Old Testament prophecies. One of the only times he really alludes to Old Testament prophecy because he's not Matthew. He's not really writing to a Jewish audience who would have an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. But here in chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, Mark is going to reference two prophecies, one from Isaiah and one, I believe, from Jeremiah. Or actually, they might be both from Isaiah, where Isaiah was presenting Jesus as the suffering servant. And so Mark is going to present Jesus as the suffering servant king. So in, so in Mark, you don't see the genealogy of Jesus. Who would be interested in the genealogy of a servant? Who would be interested in his pedigree? Um, there, there, there's no comments about the childhood of Jesus or the birth of Jesus in the book of Mark. It's not that he didn't know about those events. It's just that's not what his focus was. Mark's focus was really summed up in one of the key verses of the book of Mark, and that's this. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the focus of the book of Mark, is to, is to show us Jesus Christ, the suffering servant king. To capture people's reactions to that by really hitting you hard and fast with the actions and the events in the life of Christ. So, earth, rock, foliage, and water, those four basic elements really do present hundreds of different arrays of vistas of God's creation. And we have four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who present to us all the same picture of the life of Christ, but with different nuances, a different perspective. And I hope that studying the gospel of Mark this year impacts our life, that as we behold the life of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant king, that we would follow him, that we would be servants, that we would suffer when, when it's called upon, that we would suffer with him in his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, and that we would see that he is our king. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our allegiance. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of all. Because Jesus Christ did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many.